where is that? Where is that? That looks amazing. Oh, it's so. So okay, so it's around six o'clock in the evening. Uh, five. Precos. All right. Ah, cool. Here, here's morning. I'm, I'm based in Zurich, Switzerland, and it's, uh, a much rainy better. day or much better. Much better in Zurich. Yeah. <laughs> Why? Have you been? <laughs> oh, I spent a summer in Geneva in um, 2009. Yeah. Yeah. And okay. I went to Zurich a couple of times. And Switzerland, I think, is overall much better quality of living if you can afford it. But uh, Seoul is much better if you're young. Okay. Which I am. Yeah. 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 How old are you, by the way? Oh, I'm 29. Quite impressive. Even more impressive. Um, yeah, 30 under 30, right? Uh, Forbes, 30 under 30. Yeah, uh, that was a couple of years ago. <laughs> okay, okay. Great. Um, yeah, let's kick this off maybe just to give you some... Hello and welcome to Unforkable, the podcast that brings you them juicy stories straight from the blockchain. My name is Jonas and today on the show you will hear from a young blockchain entrepreneur based in Korea, who's building a crypto empire. I'm trying to prove uh, to the world that you can take all the different things that top fintech companies have done and do it better in crypto. Do Kwon is the co-founder and CEO of Terraform Labs, who created the Terra blockchain. At the time of this recording, Luna, the token of the Terra blockchain, is ranked in the top 15 on CoinMarketCap and has a market capitalization of $7.4 billion. Okay, so what? Another blockchain valued billions of dollars that nobody's really using. If you're thinking that, then I have to disappoint you. It's roughly being used by about 5% of the population in Korea. Uh, in terms of volume, it's doing about $1.5 billion in annualized transaction volume run rates, and that's servicing about 40 to 50 of the largest retailers in the country. The Terra blockchain is maybe even the most used blockchain for regular everyday usage, such as payments, investing, and since a couple of days, also for good old regular saving. This is because Doe has built Terra with the goal to bring crypto to mass adoption in mind. I, I really try to think about like what it's going to take to grow the pie and to bring more people into crypto. For instance, already 5% of the Korean population uses Chai Pay, a payment app, in shops, in restaurants or e-commerce, and a lot of them don't even know that they're using crypto. Mirror, another application that is built on top of the Terra blockchain, allows everyone to invest in stocks or equity only with a couple of clicks. And we go into why that's important in this podcast. Finally, Anchor is the latest protocol that Do Kwon and his team has launched on top of the Terra blockchain, actually only a couple of days after the recording of this podcast. It's a protocol that makes it easy for you to save your money. At the core of all these protocols are stablecoins that are each packed to different fiat currencies. For example, UST is one of Terra's stablecoins, it is packed to the US dollar. The Luna token, on the other hand, serves as collateral for these stablecoins and powers the Terra blockchain's delegated proof-of-stake system, ensuring the stability and security of the network. I know all of that is a mouthful and a lot to digest. Just keep in mind, there's the Terra blockchain. On top of the Terra blockchain, Do Kwon and his team have built three applications that are very useful. And we are going to deep dive into the story of those and also the story of Do Kwon in a minute. 
But before we start, let me introduce the sponsor of this episode, Verdex. The mission of Verdex is to simplify buying and selling crypto, making it truly accessible for everyone. And what could be easier than using an ATM? Verdex provides a network of over 4,100 ATMs in Switzerland where you can buy and sell Bitcoin, Ether, Litecoin, Bitcoin Cash and other cryptocurrencies instantly. But Verdex doesn't stop there. Recently the company has introduced a novel and even easier way to enter the world of digital assets. Crypto Now are voucher cards that are already available in over 4,000 retail stores across Switzerland and Liechtenstein. With CryptoNow, buying Bitcoin is as easy as buying bubblegum. Visit CryptoNow.ch to find a retailer near you and learn more about the crypto voucher cards. Last but not least, Verdex is looking for crypto talents to join their ranks. If you are looking to start a career in crypto, go and check out their open job listings at CryptoValley.jobs. They offer some very interesting positions from marketing to operations, support and much more. That's CryptoValley.jobs. And now let's start the show. Can you give you know, this, this introduction, like where you come from, how do you end up in, in crypto? Um, and, and then I have some follow-up questions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I ended up spending a lot of my formative years traveling uh, with my dad. And then, so I, I spent a decent amount of time in Canada while I was growing up. A lot of my high school years I spent in Korea. And then I went to uh, Stanford for college where uh, I studied uh, computer science and philosophy. After graduation, I was an NLP engineer at Microsoft before starting a mesh networking startup called Anyfy with a couple of my friends from college to sort of tackle connectivity issues for large venues by allowing users to connect to each other via Wi-Fi direct or Bluetooth. And then how did you end up in crypto? What I know is that 2017, a friend of you invited you to a Facebook group where you would discuss cryptocurrency projects. And you were also like going through ICOs, etc. I think a lot of people can relate to that. Yeah. Uh, so it's like an interesting time. So like a bunch of my friends from college were, you, you know, tra trading or studying crypto. But um, as you said, I was randomly invited to uh, this Facebook group where, you know, a lot of my friends were talking about things like Ethereum and Monero and uh, different things like that. And um, given that I was sort of working in an industry that was somewhat adjacent, you know, a distributed telecom and things like that, a, a lot of things that was being discussed in that group uh, interested me greatly. So I started to spend more time looking at uh, the white papers, investing in uh, different tokens and just in general, spending a lot of time like talking with those people on what are some of the short shortcomings of protocols, what are some of the ways in which uh, a certain certain project could be improved and things like that. And then how do you come from, you know, like reading about ICOs, reading white papers, investing in various coins, I assume, then to launch your own coin? In And I think, is that true? Did you do your ICO in 2019? So basically after the big boom? Well, so we raised most of our capital in, uh, you know, like very early 2018. I would say that was still fairly bull market. But then sort of subsequent fundraising rounds that we did was, you know, in, in the bear market. But the reason why working in the industry was uh, really interesting was because I, I started to look at a lot of the uh, crypto networks and projects that were launching. And then some of these were 
valued at you know four billion dollars. I think a lot of the ideas that were animating these projects were really brilliant, but uh, what was sort of confusing is that these things were fetching multi-billion dollar or, or you know tens of billions of dollars in terms of valuation, but there's nobody that was actually using them, and there wasn't a directed effort to try to get people to use that. Right, so uh, that that was one of the you know most confusing things that I thought about crypto, uh, and then, you know, I I, I felt like if somebody uh, tried to build uh, connections to real users and crypto networks, and they're offering real value propositions, that would be a game changer. Yeah. Definitely, hey, and you also have a very interesting co-founder, Daniel Chin. He's a serial entrepreneur, uh, one of the e-commerce pioneers i think of south korea and just has like a lot of success with a lot of different kind of startups and you know like a very good track record as well i mean just as you have but how do you how does someone find uh, uh, such a good co-founder how, what is the story there i first met daniel you know like during the peak of the 2017 bull run both of us were spending a decent amount of time looking into crypto And then um, I went to a bar, you know, sort of like a dinner that my friend was hosting. And then um, he he brought Daniel because uh, they they knew each other from from Penn. Um, and then you know Daniel was like trying to buy this coin called Qtum, right? Which uh, I still remember the description. Uh, it was something like it takes the best of both Bitcoin and Ethereum, which was like super confusing. Like Ethereum just added things to Bitcoin, like. What does that mean, right? And then there were like you know errors on the website, like it wouldn't scale correctly, and then there's like some typos and things like that. So I just like pointed those things out, and then I said, "Look, this thing that you're about to invest into has no users, has typos on the website, is worth four billion dollars. Are you still in?" And then so we had a pretty good laugh about that, and then that's that's when uh, we started to talk about like, okay, then what would a cryptocurrency that is actually useful going to look like? In that conversation, a lot of the uh, early designs for Terra, the stablecoin, was was first generated. That's interesting because it sounds like both of you looking for these ICOs, uh, and, and not just both of you. I mean, everybody at the time were just gambling on kind of like ICOs, trying to make a trying to make it big. It seems like both of you were kind of interested in that, and then out of this comes like this very. You know, the stablecoin, a very useful product, uh, something that is very, you know, yeah, just just a thing that is missing and uh, basically a part of the infrastructure now of decentralized finance. I mean, uh, it's the core thing you have to have is a stablecoin. Um, I think it's quite interesting that you that you took that route. Yeah, I'm still trying to figure out how you know, like, do you have in your family people who are like merchants or in in retail or That, that, that there was this need for this stablecoin because I think it's quite, um, it must have been at that time quite a huge project to undertake because it was not done yet. Yeah, so a, a lot of the use case uh, around like payments, I think Daniel definitely took the lead on that. Like having led one of the largest e-commerce companies in Korea uh, for, for 10 years, as well as, you know, uh, co-founding and helping to start a number of others. Like he definitely knew a lot of the industry needs better than I did, uh, as well as because he, he was a prolific investor in Southeast Asia and uh, China at the time as well. So a lot of the pain points he was definitely able to uh, connect with a lot better than I could. Um, yeah, so I, I would say it was a overall a pretty fruitful uh, partnership. 
Definitely. <laughs> I think one of the, the themes um, is your interest to bring this decentralized ledger technology to millions and millions of users. Right. Um, where does this interest to build something that can be used by a broad population come from? Can you track this down maybe, you know, from your past, history of your past, or just ambition to grow something big? Do you, do you see, you know, like a, a threat there that, that goes through your life? Yeah, I, I think the motivation to really stand by and grow crypto ecosystems is a little bit different from finding my role within crypto networks themselves. Um, yeah. In terms of like why I do the things that I do is, um, I, you know, like I think there's lots of different teams that are building on making crypto more free. So what I mean is, Uh, there are people that are looking inwards to solving uh, problems for existing crypto users and traders. So, uh, you know, introducing new, new technologies like working on zero knowledge proofs to enhance privacy, right? Uh, working on scalability solutions, working on more tooling, uh, working on creating new assets. And I think those are all worthy endeavors. And uh, ultimately, it sort of helps the industry become more efficient, more transparent and more valuable but it doesn't really help to draw more people in. And that's sort of how I see uh, you know, my place uh, in crypto, whereby instead of looking inwards to serve existing crypto population, I, I really try to think about like what it's going to take to grow the pie and to bring more people into crypto. And a lot of this boils down to like, what is the simplest value proposition that, that you can offer everyday users uh, that blockchains can offer? Right. And it turns out that those things are very simple as encapsulated by our stable coins, our savings protocols and our synthetic protocols. Mm -hmm. Let's now focus on, on the, the payment case. Um, you know, where does this motivation come from to, to launch a payment network? And also when I think about Korea, I've never been, to be honest, I think the, it's, it's a very developed country in terms of technology. People love to adopt the latest tech and I thought that must have been solved already, that problem with, with, with payments. But apparently it's not. Can, can you go a little bit deeper? What was the issue there with payments and what exactly is the, the use case for those apps? So payments is really interesting because uh, it's a two-sided market, right? So it connects uh, you know, people that are willing to sell things to people that are willing to buy things. So largely it's a, a network that connects businesses to consumers. And what's really interesting is that over the last 20 years, the consumer side of the businesses have become highly efficient. So if you look at, uh, you know, the Cash App or, you know, the PayPal's network uh, or like one click on Amazon, like to some extent, like even looking at things like investments as payment networks, like Robinhood offers a really sexy interface for people to be able to trade assets, right? But the really interesting mm -hmm. thing is that on the business side, so whereby the money is taken from consumers and settled to merchants, the network is, is still just as efficient as it was 20 years ago. And that's really, really interesting. So really, if you look at uh, these sort of highly regulated networks, the innovation happens to come in places where the features are highly visible. So on the consumer side, like a lot of people got really frustrated and demanded you know, progress in line with how the rest of the internet and mobile apps were moving. So that's where a lot of the innovation came from. But the underlying networks still don't work the way that they're supposed to. 
So for example, like the reason why, you know, Robinhood had to stop trading of GM GameStop, for instance, like during the Wall Street Bets movement is because like uh, transactions in modern financial networks are not atomic, right? So the user buying a stock and then that actually settling and propagating to order books and stock exchanges uh, is, is not the same. Transactions are instantaneous. Settlement takes several days. And that same mm-hmm. problem persists across, you know, payment networks, right? So, for example, uh, in the U.S., uh, generally, uh, it takes more than seven days in order for a transaction to be settled to a merchant. In Japan, it can go up to 10 days. In Korea, I think it's, you know, somewhere between six to eight, depending on what variant that you're using. And then it turns out that these sort of extremely expensive and slow settlement times is some of the greatest roadblocks to the adoption of digital payments all across the world. So for example, if you go to Singapore, like no cab driver would want to take your credit card. Like most of them just wants to take cash. And there's a pretty simple reason for that. Like for a cab driver, uh, when you know they, they make money from fares in one day, they need that money right away such that they can buy fuel for the next day of rides and to be able to put food on their family's tables you know, the next day. Mm-hmm. So they can't wait to afford mm-hmm. a week in order for money to be uh, settled to them. Or for example, like if you're, um, you know, like a restaurant business that's working with the likes of Deliveroo or, you know, Grubhub, right? Uh, and uh, in Asia, generally, you know, merchants tend to be smaller with, you know, uh, less working capital and things like that. You really can't wait that many days, especially in like a COVID context in, in order for money to be settled to you. So that's why a lot of businesses insist on cash. I think where most of the blockchain solutions um, fail is because instead of trying to convince businesses to take uh, you know, crypto, they, they try to get the consumer to pay in crypto and for the merchant to be settled in fiat. So actually, this doesn't grow the pie at all. There's no value proposition to be able to pay with Bitcoin versus being able to pay with fiat. I mean, everybody has fiat, right? So there's no... And besides just like a novelty scheme, there's no reason why or unique value proposition that any of these payment networks are offering. So how we're a little bit different is that we take, you know, either fiat or crypto from the user. So we're agnostic on the on-ramp part. And then in terms of the settlement, we settle in stable coins. So the benefit of this is twofold. Number one, settlement times become drastically faster. So traditional payments took seven to eight days. With us, it takes six seconds which is the average block time of the Terra blockchain. So this enables lots of different use cases and a vector for lots of different merchants that was, wasn't previously accepting digital payments to be able to do it. And furthermore, like given that we don't have to rely on sort of uh, archaic settlement networks, uh, we were able to drastically cut down on fees as well. But then again, I think that's also something that a lot of uh, challenger banks and neobanks are working on. And, and how, how do you... Do you do that with those apps? Because, you know, um, we all know if the blockchain is kind of like when you send it, it's done, it's gone. Um, if the settlement time is six seconds, if I grab a phone of some user of your you know, pay, uh, chai pay, and I send all the money to me, um, can you undo that? Or is there, is it just gone? Like if, if I would have sent Bitcoin? Yeah, so um, I guess... If you try to arbitrate a transaction with Chai, we would try to reverse the transaction by negotiating with the merchant. But you're right, like the profile of what how that sort of reconciliation is going to look like is different on Chai uh, vis-a-vis you know, other networks that you would use like credit cards. 
has that ever uh, happened? Like that you had to do something like that or? Well, no. So, so basically, uh, you know, how credit cards justify the fees that they earn is by bringing up cases of like fraud and like overcharge and things like that. But largely it's just like BS to be able to defend their margin. So right now, like, for example, like chargeback uh, claims on China is, is it's just a few basis points on our overall volume. So it's like extremely, extremely low. And even if it's high, it doesn't justify like a 3% plus fee, right? Like, because mm-hmm. that, that would mean that their chargeback compliance cost is in excess of, let's say, uh, 2%, right? Which would fundamentally break the business model and you would have to question the moral fiber of the American consumer, right? Uh, but uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But okay. Uh, and ca- can you give us some numbers just to give the the listener an idea how huge this thing is? How many people are using um, the network daily? Um, you know how many how many transactions go over the network? Just to to get a little bit a scope of um, the Terra blockchain or the apps that that run on on them on it. Sure. Um, so largely, um, you know, on, on Terra, the core team has worked on, shall we say, three different things. And then all of these different initiatives are geared towards making Terra stable points more useful. So, for example, we have a number of payment companies in Korea and Mongolia. And the goal there is to make our stable coins the easiest to use. Right? Uh, and then we recently launched a synthetics protocol called Mirror, uh, which you know, allows users to issue and trade tokens that track the price of any real world asset. And then the goal there is to make our stable coins the easiest gateway to be able to uh, buy or trade whatever types of investment opportunities it may be. And then the last is, you know, anchor savings, which should be launching in a few days. And then the goal there is to make our stable coins the most attractive to hold. Um, so to put some numbers around these things in terms of payments, uh, Across Chai, which is the e-wallet that we created in Korea, uh, this this is a company that we founded uh, about 20 months ago, and then uh, it recently raised uh, cumulatively around 88 million dollars from led by SoftBank and a few a few a few other uh, investors, and then it's doing about 80,000 uh, daily active users, and is in, on aggregate it's roughly being used by about five percent of the population in Korea. Uh, in terms of volume, it's doing about $1.5 billion in annualized transaction volume run rates, and it's servicing about 40 to 50 of the largest retailers in the country. Uh, MimiPay, which is a much smaller operation, has a monthly active user base of, let's say, 30 to 40,000. Um, and this runs on Terra's Mongolian stablecoin, Terra MNT. Uh, and then, so the number seems small, but considering that Mongolia itself has only about 2.5 million. Uh, mobile users is actually a non-trivial percentage of people that are using it in the capital city. So it's uh, some, some interesting numbers coming in for payments. Uh, Mirror, which recently launched, is exhibiting some uh, interesting usage numbers as well. So the numbers here change a lot more frequently. But uh, in terms of total value locked, we're seeing, let's say, uh, $761 million today after less than three months of operations. Uh, and then daily trading volume, you know, oscillates anywhere between, you know, uh, 25 to $40 million on a daily basis. Yeah. Which wow. would make okay. it uh, one of the most actively used uh, synthetics protocols in existence. 
That's amazing. Um, what is a synthetic protocol? How, how would you explain that to a five-year-old? Yeah, so uh, you can just think of them as shadow tokens. So uh, let's say that you have some real-world good that uh, you would like to shadow. Let's call it A. And then you mint a shadow token called B. And then the idea is that at any given time, B's value in the open market is going to be, or B's pricing in the open market is going to be identical to whatever A price uh, yeah, trades at in the real real market. So uh, the types of mirror synthetics would be like, for example, mirrored Apple stock, Tesla, Microsoft, uh, you know, Silver Trust, uh, Gold Trust, uh, and you know, things like that. <laughs> you started with some of the, the equities and stocks, the, the ones you just mentioned, the, the biggest in the US. And what is the need for, I mean, why, why not just buying them directly? Oh. Yeah. So the the goal isn't to allow U.S. citizens to be able to purchase uh, U.S. equities, right? So uh, the short-term goals here would be to allow price exposure to people outside of the U United States and mostly developed countries to be able to purchase uh, these assets in a permissionless context. So in the, if you look at most jurisdictions in, let's say, Asia, for instance, uh, You know, there's a lot of adverse uh, regulations and you know just just market realities that make it very difficult for people to be able to uh, efficiently buy into U.S. equities. So, for example, like capital gains taxes on foreign equities is 26% in Korea, and then whenever you know like retail wow. interest in foreign equities starts to pick up again, for example, like when Tesla goes up, like regulators always issue a statement saying that, oh, we're going to start to raise. Uh, Uh, foreign capital gains again, like if, uh, you know, speculative interest doesn't die down. And then this is in comparison to, you know, local equities taxes, which is 0.2%. So it, like absolutely doesn't make sense. So the laws are specifically designed to make it very difficult for people to be able to trade U.S. equities. Mm -hmm. Same laws in Japan. And then in many jurisdictions, there's actually limits on uh, what types of investors can invest into these assets. So in some places, like you might have to be accredited or you might have to be registered. There might be a minimum fee that, that you need to mm -hmm. uh, deposit in order to be able to trade. So uh, all in all, there's a, there's a large underserved market uh, trying to tap into one of the most attractive asset classes in the world. U.S. companies lead the world in terms of innovation and, uh, and, and growth. So it stands to reason that their equities would be one of the most attractive but there's a large underserved population that is not currently able to get it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And why do you think, um, what, what's the interest of the government to kind of not allow the population to invest in foreign stocks? Well, just think about it this way. If you could buy Tesla or if you could buy BMW, why would you buy Hyundai? Right? Yeah, like, because, it's, it, because it's good as well, right? I mean, the... the I mean, let's say Samsung, I'm sure the stock did fantastic over the last five years or, or even short term. So, yes, I, I'm not saying that no Korean equity is, uh, you know, uh, worth investing in. But uh, on average, you're just going to see a lot more attractive investment opportunities in larger markets than you're going to see in smaller markets. Mm -hmm. So, for example, this is exactly the same reason why You know, most users opt to trade on Binance, for instance, instead of on, let's say, 
what's like a really small exchange? Uh, yeah, let, let's say that there's like a small exchange that lots of people don't use. So there, there's a reason yeah. why people, you know, prefer assets that are a little bit larger and that trade in larger markets. But just imagine that, you know, on the smaller exchange, mm -hmm. like Bitcoin is missing or like Ethereum is missing, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But... You know, you could also go the other way around and say, hey, for a government, it's super interesting that the population actually has wealth, can build wealth, and they're not kind of relying on social security and just build, you know, and, you know, when they make money, this money will eventually flow back into the local economy. Um, but it seems to be not the, the, the current way of thinking, uh, at least. Um, uh, but... Now you offer a solution that people can actually participate in those gains. Right. Will uh, regulators come after you next? Yeah. So this is actually something really interesting about Mirror uh, is um, when we first launched the Mirror protocol, uh, we created a governance token called MIR. And then we gave that away to everyone except ourselves. So, um, you know, so the MIR token gives, confers to the holder the ability to set everything in the protocol. So, like, we reserved no power for ourselves. And then all the parameters, the community pool that's currently about $200 million strong, uh, and uh, everything gets decided by a vote of MIR token holders. Uh, and then, so we fair launched this without, you know, a pre-19 allocation. And then, mm -hmm. um, so, like, we... All the proceeds of what whatever makes mirror, mirror protocol valuable, we have no exposure to it. Uh, and then, if you look at how the discussions and at the development of the community is going now, like like very large portions of what, whatever is happening is happening through community discussions and community contributions and uh, different projects that are building on top of mirror. So, I mean, yes, uh, I guess you could say that uh, raise issues with uh, how we launched fair launch day. Uh, synthetics protocol in this sort of uncertain industry. But it's like, I think it's very hard to blame us for writing code, distributing it and open sourcing it fairly, and then taking no financial upside from it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's the, the, the way of decentralization. Yeah, like uh, when, when I don't know, I'm sure you also have like um, something like the SEC and then they must have some 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 questions and uh, you, you can just say, hey, um, well, it's decentralized. We are actually not really in control. It's uh, it's out there now. Um, I, I actually don't want to go super technical in this podcast. It's more like a storytelling podcast with the same goal as you to bring more people in, kind of to bring mass adoption in. But I can you super simply explain how you mirror, let's say, let's make it very specific. Let's say uh, Tesla stock. How do you even produce such a, Uh, synthetic pr um, product and how does that work? I mean, without going into details. Yeah, it's it's pretty simple. So there's, you know, uh, whenever like let's say a synthetic Tesla stock is created, there needs to be somebody who mints it, and the the creator basically posts, uh, let's say a hundred dollars worth of stablecoin as collateral, right, and then mints uh, something that's you know, lower in value. So, and then $80 worth of Tesla uh, tokens mm -hmm. is minted. And then sort of he sells that in the open market in order to short Tesla. And on the other side, there's somebody who wants to buy up the Tesla stock. So he, he takes uh, a sell order 
Uh, and then whenever the price of Tesla stock goes up uh, above, you know, whatever the, the amount of collateral that was posted, like ACE collateral is margin called. So then the stable coin is seized and then used to buy back Tesla tokens from the open market in order to net erase the system's exposure. So you can sort of think about it as MakerDAO, except the collateral is stable and the synthetics are volatile. Okay. And what, what would you say is, um, let's say somebody thinks, hey, that's a great idea. Um, I want to be part of that, um, specifically the governance token. I think governance tokens still, it's kind of like unproven to, to say they have a, a value. What is this specific value of the governance token? I mean, I understand that with each governance token, you basically can say future revenue. Um, but with your governance token for, for, for Mirror, is there already a revenue share currently that would kind of, um, you know, make sense to for investors to go in and say, hey, you should have some mirror? Oh, I, so I, I wouldn't say that governance features themselves provides any value to the token. In fact, I think most governance tokens are useless. The, the governance, oh. uh, governance features are just, uh, if you want to participate, it's just a feature that gets baked into, into the token. But uh, the MIR governance token has cash flows. So that, that's why it's interesting. So uh, for example, when a user uh, sort of decides to enter into a short position against an asset, which means this person is, let's say, minting the synthetic, uh, then mm -hmm. when, when, when this person chooses to close his short position, he pays a small fee, uh, let's say 1.5% of whatever the total size of the position was. And, and then, Uh, those sort of position closure fees gets added up and used to buy back MIR uh, from, you know, Paraswap, which is the main DEX in which these things trade. And then uh, the MIR tokens are then distributed to people that have staked MIR. So essentially, mm -hmm. it's sort of like a buyback and distribute scheme whereby, uh, you know, like more engagement that people are having with the mirror protocol gets reflected in the tokens value. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and what about the Anchor protocol? I mean, uh, I would say Anchor is a saving account for digital assets with a fixed interest rate, right? Is, is, would you say that's basically what it boils down to? Yeah. So I, I, I think what Anchor is trying to solve is probably the most important problem that the crypto industry could be solving for mass adoption at this given moment in time. Because uh, if you try to deposit dollars in a bank, right, it offers you no interest, whereas like annualized real inflation is, you know, 2%. So just by keeping your money in a bank account, you're losing money every year. Mm -hmm. So yeah. this, this is why all the asset prices are going crazy, like arts, like equities, crypto, everything's going off the roof. It's because like people are, don't feel comfortable parking their capital in anything else. <clears throat> You know, keeping it in bonds is like a non sequitur, like you can't put it into like a bank account. That's why like uh, most of the money is flowing into speculative uh, investment cases, but it doesn't have to be that way. It's not so much that, you know, money managers are suddenly finding that speculative assets are more attractive. It's because if they don't do that, that they will end up losing money on a on sort of a real basis, right? Mm -hmm. And um Where Anchor gets really interesting is that I think the rates that it will be able to offer even without, you know, uh, yield farming on top of it 
is let's say 10 to 12 percent on, on the first year and uh what that's going to mean is that um you know let's say we were able to package this and then to get it into a, a meaningfully large fintech company let's say mm -hmm. uh, in korea chai or let's say uh in the us uh venmo or acorns adopted it it would be commercial suicide for its competitors to not adopt the same thing, right? So for example, if Venmo was offering you 12% on your deposits tomorrow, wouldn't you move all your money from Wells Fargo to Venmo? Like I would do that in, in a heartbeat. Right? If I would trust Venmo enough. But yeah. Right. Is, yeah, so the assumption is that the people that use these brands have a reasonable amount of trust with these platforms, mm. right? Mm. How how big are those risks? Because I mean, it sounds very, very exciting. Obviously, I mean, people uh, listening and uh, right now in the bull run, uh, I'm sure a lot of people have t made a ton of money and they're thinking about storing those gains somewhere. And once Anchor comes out, I mean, ten percent the first year fixed, more or less fixed, or even uh, the chance to go to twelve percent, sounds like a super sweet deal. What are the risks involved? Yeah, so uh, some of the potential risks are things like, let's say, consensus failure in one of the blockchains that Anchor supports. So uh, where Anchor finds its weakness, and I think this is sort of this risk is sort of shared with uh, a lot of the lending and where money market protocols in the space, is that as you sort of dive into the long tail of assets, it starts to weaken the financial security of the overall system. So, for example, for Compound, or let's say most notably Cream, so Cream sort of capitalized on supporting assets that Compound wouldn't support. Uh, but as you start to dig into the long tail, then you know pricing risk and execution risk and smart contract risk all increased as you started to add more assets. And as for Anchor, I think like the trick is the overall system is only as robust as the weakest chain in the in, in the in the system. So as it starts to expand and support more assets, it should probably have uh, you know, pretty solid plans around uh, what would happen if technical risk manifested in you know, one of the chains and you know, a significant chunk of the collateral went to zero. Mm -hmm. wow. So um, you have a solution for payments, investing, and now you launch something for savings. Do you think traditional banks will still be around in the future? I'm betting my career on that it would not be. But like independent of Terra, I think that's going to largely go away. But, uh, you know, it's, in some sense, I think a lot of this is cyclical, right? So most people that are running, you know, fintech apps in Silicon Valley think that banks are the way they are because they got too comfortable, because they're like corporate fat cats and they don't get technology. I don't think that's the case. So like as networks get larger and lar larger, uh, it sort of starts to pick up Uh, responsibilities and mandates of supporting as broad of uh, a population base as possible. So it doesn't have the agility or the freedom of younger networks as being uh, as like, you know, supporting only the early adopters. And, you know, a lot of Silicon Valley firms get a lot of uh, criticism for that. Like they only try to serve people that are sort of in the know, can use mobile apps really well, internet really well. So whereas like mm -hmm. people that use Venmo can do that, Uh, people that use Wells Fargo, uh, you know, don't really have that sort of flexibility. And um, 
So mm-hmm. it's because it, it has a lot of the exhibits, a lot of the characteristics of a public good or a public offering. They need to be able to build solutions that a 50 year old can use, that a 60 year old can use. And that means like you need to keep branches open and then uh, allow customer support over ARS and different things like that. Uh, yeah. So it's, uh, I'm sure that once fintech companies get older, they're they're going to grow outdated and anachronistic, similar to how you know PayPal has become. Uh, and and then I think it's going to happen to a lot of the first generation crypto networks as well, except at a accelerated pace. Oh, but wouldn't you say that you with your payments, um, which I I cannot use the apps here. Um, but they're also kind of geared towards this mass, um, you know, a 60-year-old can use it. And I think you, that's also the, the goal, especially with the payments. Um, I think you have restaurants, you have taxi drivers, you have a lot of e-commerce people using it. Um, isn't that also like super geared towards the the, the, the public? I mean... Right. Yeah. So I, what, what I'm trying to do now is that I'm trying to prove uh, to the world that you can take all the different things that top fintech companies have done and do it better in crypto. You can do Robinhood better through Mirror. Like you can do uh, Alipay better with Chai. You can do, you know, uh, Wells Fargo better through Anchor, right? Um, but that's that's not to say that uh, I, I take what these firms have done uh, lightly, right? Because Wells mm-hmm. Fargo did a lot for American institutions. Like Robinhood was a game changer. And it, to some extent, it still is, right? Um, it's it's just being cognizant that new technologies become outdated, and if you if you try to understand the the competitive choices that other people have made, uh, it does well to take a balanced view of how things turned out the way they they did. Definitely. <laughs> and now, if um, if people listening, uh, or, or let's say me, I, I'm this is not investment advice, obviously. Uh, I think, hey, what you what you've built is amazing. It's um, all the three projects are. Uh, sounding very promising um where do i start like how do i get how can i get some of the upside yeah so so luna is is kind of like an interesting asset because it doesn't necessarily benefit for more more people buying it so uh, well so it it kind of does because it appreciates in price but all the things that luna captures are sort of transaction fees in Terra's network Right, and then the the more people that jump in in order to get that, you know, the overall share gets diluted. So, in some sense, like I, I'm sort of I, I don't really recommend people to uh, buy Luna all the time. I'm I'm just generally like buy some if you're like interested. But uh, generally, we try to sort of coalesce all the value capture happening in the in the ecosystem to Terra staking asset called Luna. So Luna is a really interesting mm-hmm. asset because every time that, let's say, a, a trade happens on Mirror Protocol or a payment is made through Terra Stablecoins through some of our payment networks, a small fee is paid to people that stake Luna in the form of, let's say, block rewards. So every block, there's some cash flow happening to Luna, depending on what, what types of apps are running on top of the Terra blockchain. In addition to that, in order to mint one unit of Terra Stablecoin, you need to burn a dollar's worth of Luna. So as Terra stablecoins become more and more adopted, and as uh, the market cap of USD and various different stablecoins grows, the, the total supply of Luna becomes diminished. Mm-hmm. So you can sort of think about Luna as, you know, like a value sink in the network, whereby it has a 100% propensity to dividend and an ever-diminishing supply. 
Okay. Also, so that sounds like it has a lot of uh, value capture mechanism. Before you were in the beginning, you're saying, hey, I don't really recommend it because a lot of it will be diluted somehow. But what I get is also, hey, actually, we try to make it um, valuable. And it's not just like, I don't know, a lot of people have projects and say, this coin has no value at all. It's literally just, I don't know. Oh, so what to... I mean is that per unit, like if, if mm -hmm. new people stake Luna, the existing stakeholders get less. Uh, uh -huh. Yeah, does that make sense? So, yeah. like, the rewards are not inflationary. There's a finite amount of rewards based on real adoption, and then if there's mm. new entrants, like the existing entrants get less. Uh, okay, but let's say, or let's make it simple. If more people use the the network, the, the payment apps, um, uh, Chai Chai Pay, and have more volume, would you expect that the price would also benefit from that? That that would definitely benefit, yeah, yeah, because cash flow is okay. up, right? Yeah, and then obviously it can be offset if too many people jump into it, but uh, which a lot of people do in crypto. There's a tendency to overshoot and right. to go too parabolic into stuff, because yeah. um, it has seen quite a good rise, right? I mean, it went lunar went to the moon recently. Yeah, it it, it ended up doing pretty well. Hey, Jonas, I actually have to, uh, I have a dinner that I need to get to. Uh, oh, yeah. Can yeah, we yeah, sort yeah, of wrap yeah. up? Of course. Um, so then last question, where can people find you? Where should people follow you? I'm most vocal on Terra's uh, Telegram chats and my personal Twitter. So all of those are available uh, at sort of like the bottom section. If you go to our main website, which is Terra.money. Uh, if you find me on Twitter, you can often uh, see me talking about you know, has various projects or some observations. It might be me or a communications intern that we've hired. So uh, <laughs> you're going to have to take your bets uh, on that one. <laughs> all right. Thank you so much, though. It was a pleasure. And I'll send you the episode as soon as it's finished. Just a short update, since the recording of this episode, some things has changed, especially some numbers. The Anchor protocol has launched and is offering currently not 10 or 12% um, interest on your stablecoin, as mentioned in the podcast, but actually a 20% interest on your stablecoin. That's absolutely crazy. Concerning the show, I feel this episode is more on the technical side. Um, if you didn't get everything the first time, that's understandable. It was really the same for me, actually. Re-listening to the episode helped me to understand it much better. Check out the show notes to where I can point you in the right directions if you want to learn more about Doquan and Terra, Mirror, Anchor or Chai Pay. If you like the show and you listened until here, please go to unforkable.cc, sign up for the mailing list where, where I will be sending out information in the future, the best things I find in crypto during the week. And also, um, don't be shy and leave a, re a review. It helps other people find the show. Thank you very much and see you the next time. <laughs>